If you're able, would you join me in standing to honor the word of God? Our text this morning comes uh, from Matthew chapter 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw how wonderful, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am uh, privileged to introduce to you uh, today our uh, preacher, Carte Bales. Uh, Carte is a teaching elder in the uh, PCA through Mission to the World, and he and his wife are members here at New City as well. We're very privileged to have him with us. So uh, as I pray for you, Carte, you can come on up. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for Carte. I thank you for his friendship, and I uh, thank you for the work that you have done in his life. I thank you how you use him uh, to benefit so many people in your kingdom and out of your kingdom. And I thank you for the gifting of uh, teaching that you have given him that we will benefit from this morning. I pray that in his uh, heart you would quiet any anxieties, that you would lessen his voice and magnify yours. And for us who hear, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of it. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Well, good morning, New City. Wanted to just say uh, what, what Brandon said earlier uh, about Palm Sunday, and that's it. That's, that's the sermon. It's a delight, really, to be opening the Word of God with you again this morning. Uh, on this Palm Sunday, 
Uh, today we're starting a, a two-part series. If you came expecting to hear uh, something on Romans, uh, don't be disappointed. Uh, we'll get back to Romans, uh, but but for now we're interrupting it for this very very important week in the church calendar, and that's the week of uh, Palm Sunday through Easter. And so we're starting a a two-part series. So I guess a mini-series. Uh, and today we'll focus on the hope of Palm Sunday and Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And next week, uh, Pastor Ryan will be focusing on the fulfillment of hope uh, in, in uh, this mini-series called Hosanna, A Journey from Hope to Fulfillment. And it is a journey. Jesus is, is on a journey. He's on a, a divine mission. And he arrives here in Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. In fact, Jesus' journey uh, in his earthly ministry is divided in the book of Luke um, into two components. Uh, there's an earlier piece of his, his ministry, and then in Luke chapter 9, um, Luke records that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so the whole latter half of his ministry is focused on this moment, this point, this goal, arriving at this great city. The entire earthly ministry of Jesus is headed toward the moment that we celebrate this morning. And from the text this morning, you can imagine him approaching the city. You can imagine in your mind these, these crowds shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means something like save us or save now as they recite Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, that Hosanna we pray, O Lord, O Lord we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, from this place, from Jerusalem. And these crowds are massive. The historian Josephus uh, records that uh, as many as two and a half million people came to the city in this era for uh, this Passover festival. And in this cacophony of the crowds, they're laying their cloaks on the roads in front of Jesus as he passes. They're giving him the red carpet treatment reserved for kings. They're cutting branches from the trees. They're spreading them on the road. John records that they're cutting palm branches, which had become something of a national symbol for Israel, and they're taking these branches and they're, they're waving them as Jesus passes. Luke records these crowds shouting, blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew's explanation of this, this whole scene is a fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah written 500 years earlier, where Zechariah records and prophesies, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and sal having salvation as he, humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's the conundrum for first century Palestine. Kings don't come humble on donkeys, on colts. They come on war horses, dressed for battle, great steeds. You see, Jerusalem was a city that was familiar with conquest. It was a conquered city. Uh, Israel was a conquered nation. From the fall of the city in, in 586, uh, when the exiles were taken away to their later return under King Cyrus, the city was conquered by Alexander the Great in 332, and it went through tumult after tumult. And just as Israel's borders and control started to expand, it was crushed when Herod the Great seized control of Jerusalem and he installed a regime of client kings who ruled the Jewish people with the iron fist of Rome. Jews living in this Jerusalem were second or fifth class citizens. People taxed on the meager subsistence they were able to eke out of the land, subject uh, to Roman laws, treated harshly by their oppressors. Hosanna, save. Well, if the crowds were hopeful for salvation, in who or what was their hope? Will this prophet on a colt save us? At the same time, the reaction of the city is the opposite, isn't it? Verse 10 says, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And with the shouts of Hosanna ringing throughout the temple, they became indignant, the text says. After all, kings don't ride colts. So here's the big idea. Here's where we're headed as the overarching idea for our text today. Jesus calls us to an eternal journey of true hope, upending our hearts, lesser earthly hopes along the way. And we'll unpack this big idea as we look at the crowds, as we look at the city, and then finally, we look at Jesus himself. So first, let's, let's look at the crowds, the crowds and the unfulfilled journey of the crowds. Matthew depicts this crowd as a, as a great crowd following Jesus. They have just witnessed him restoring sight to two blind men as he's coming up to Jerusalem from Jericho just prior to this. In John's gospel account, leading up to this moment, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead back to life. And John writes, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. This was a, a must-see moment. A man raised from the dead and, and, and the one who did it. Lepers cleansed, the blind with their sight restored, the deaf hear, the dead raised, the lame walk. The crowd grows and gathers and follows. Maybe this is the long hope for Messiah, God's anointed one, the prophet, king, and priest that we've been waiting for. And now here they are, this throng 
with Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Running ahead, throwing their cloaks on the ground. Save now. The crowd is shouting those words from Psalm 118. The psalm recited, by the way, by, by the community at Passover as a personal thanksgiving to God. Well, if you were a Jew living in first century Palestine, you know, no doubt longed for the end of Rome, for the end of oppression, the establishment of God's righteous kingdom. You hear that longing among the disciples. Back in Matthew 19, Jesus announces to his disciples that um, he is coming to uh, establish his, his righteous kingdom and he will sit on his righteous throne. And just right after that, the next moment, the mother of two of his disciples begged Jesus that her sons can sit on his right hand and his left hand. What's the rush? Longing? misplaced expectations. I mean, you hear it even after the resurrection of Jesus when his disciples hopefully ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they longing for? They're longing for Jesus to establish David's throne as king forever in his new kingdom instead of Rome's for a prophet like Moses so we can hear the words of God and not the words of Caesar for a righteous priest, unlike the Pharisees, to sit with him in a restored world. See, the crowds were, were longing that their generations of suffering, of the endless cycles of exile and wandering, of being the oppressed would finally come to an end. Dr. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Prodigal God, all of the many exoduses and many homecomings of the Bible failed in the end to deliver the final and full homecoming the prophets promised and everyone longed for. What did the crowds long for? Well, what do you long for? Peace, shalom, wholeness, unbrokenness, just as it was back in the beginning in the garden before the fall of man, when there was no lack for anything, when the first man and woman were known fully by God and walked with him in the cool of the day, the Bible says, before guilt and shame entered that unbroken world for which we were made. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher writes, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart. How is it we long for a full and final homecoming, as Dr. Keller puts it? Because it's wired into us. It's that eternity that's burned into our hearts, our deepest longing for the place for which we were made. Mark Maynell writes, it's that profound, if fleeting sense, not only that there's more to existence than anything in this life, but also that the beyond is where we belong. That's why we yearn for it. We yearn for the beyond, where we belong. It's those longings that drive us towards something or someone to hope in. They fuel 
our hope. I asked ChatGPT, <laughs> it's the first time I've used that in a sermon, um, the internet-based uh, AI, artificial intelligence uh, assistant, if, you, if you're not familiar with ChatGPT, uh, and I asked it, what's the relationship between longing and hope? And here's the response it gave me. I think it's actually a good one. Longing refers to a persistent yearning for something that is absent or unattainable, often involving a sense of sadness or nostalgia for something that was lost. Hope refers to a positive expectation or anticipation that something desirable will happen or be achieved in the future. Longing can fuel hope, and hope can help us overcome the feelings of sadness that come with longing. So here are the massive crowds, longing to be freed, to be healed, to be whole, to be known and loved by God. And they've pinned those hopes on the man on the colt. Just as the prophet Zechariah said, and yet, by the end of the week, all but a handful will have abandoned that very hope. The king enters the city to cries of joy, and within a week, they will be wails of disappointment, just as Brandon said earlier. Even the hopes of Jesus' closest disciples are dashed. You read it in Luke 24 as the disciples walk together on the road to Emmaus later. And they say, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. The cross in just a few days' time, the only hope we see is that of a thief beside him, a centurion, a group of women, the disciples, uh, disciple he loved, and his mom. We had hoped. Our longings drive us to hope in something, someone, but very often they're insufficient little hopes that can never bear the weight of the longings we hang on it. Just recently, I hung a, hung a cabinet in my laundry room. Uh, if you can make out from this, this photo, they um, helpfully drilled, pre-drilled holes in it uh, 16 inches apart. So um, I could drill it into studs, into the wood behind the drywall. It, it was a really good idea. I'm so thankful for the manufacturer. The problem is my wall uh, has 19-inch spaces between the studs, not 16. So one side of the cabinet, I was able to drill into the studs. The other side, I had to put drywall anchors into the drywall. And as I put the cabinet up, I more or less may or may not have actually hit the drywall anchors. So it may or may not be partially suspended by the drywall itself. Listen, my, my longing was simply for, for organization, right? Just to get all of the soap boxes and dispensers and things off of, the, off of floors and cabinets and, and put it into one, one space. And with every ginormous bottle of Costco detergent that was loaded into this, my heart kind of sank a little. I wasn't quite sure whether this thing was going was gonna to work 
or not. So far, it's holding. But here's the point. Is what I'm hoping in fastened deeply enough, anchored well enough, that it's going to support all of the longings I put on it? See, the greater the longings, the more secure what I'm hoping in needs to be so it all doesn't come crashing down. We had hoped. We're often disappointed because we hang our hopes, our longings on the wrong hope, or we don't understand the strength of the hope to bear up under our longings. We, we've all had those I had hoped disappointments. I had hoped. I'd hoped winning the lottery uh, was going to give me uh, security uh, throughout my life, and I wasn't going to have to worry about financial needs. Like Bud uh, Post. Bud Post won the Pennsylvania lottery for $16 million. When he did, he had $2.42 in his bank account. When he died eight years later, he was a million dollars in debt and living on food stamps. See, he'd wanted security. He'd wanted to know that everything was going to work out okay. That was his longing. Or I had hoped my marriage would have survived the most recent storm that we never saw coming. See, my marriage was a place where I felt loved and known. Felt like it could be fully known. And I'd hope, I hoped for that. I'd longed for that. I'd hoped my child... Uh, would get that full athletic scholarship, right? So I, I wouldn't have to pay the bill, but um, I, I was hoping she was going to go on to um, athletic greatness. Who knew that she would blow her knee out in her sophomore year? I hope. But what I long for is wholeness and a world where knees don't break. I'd hoped my house would have withstood the tornado, not been blown away with all my possessions. I'm longing, longing for a place, a home that doesn't collapse because of a great storm. Well, these crowds had been longing to be free, longing for peace and security. They're longing that Jesus would conquer their enemies and establish his eternal rule and reign. And by the end of the week, they'd left disappointed. It's not that Jesus' journey had failed. The crowds had placed their longings on the hope of Jesus on their terms, with their expectations. They didn't understand the journey of Jesus in securing a true and lasting hope for his people. We had hoped he would be the one. Our hearts do this in, in many ways. And when we get to the I had hoped, if we look closer, we often discover it was our little earthly hopes that we had hung our longings on which disappointed us. And our hearts are called back to the journey of Jesus to an eternal lasting hope. Let's look into the crowds. Now let's look at the city and consider the self-fulfilled journey of the religious. Matthew records this counter response to, to the Hosanna 
a counter response by this whole city. And, it's, and he says the whole city was stirred up. It's, it's the word from which we get the, the English word seismic. That the coming of Jesus shakes the city. They look at the man on the colt and they ask, who is this? You can almost hear the, the sarcasm. Who's this supposed king on a colt? And when the religious elites see all of the commotion, Matthew writes, they become indignant. Indignant. And then he records a very interesting encounter with the city, right? Jesus does this divine redecorating of the temple. And he turns over the tables of the money changers. He chases out those who sold and bought in the temple, those who sold pigeons. See, the religious elite had figured out how to profit from people coming to temple, how to monetize that space where the non-Jews could come and experience God and experience the community of God. But hey, they aren't us after all, right? They don't think like us, behave like us. They, they aren't even God's people. In fact, we don't need someone pretending to be a king on a donkey to come riding in here and shaking things up. We have the Torah, we have the Mishnah, our system is complete. The crowds are shouting Hosanna and the religious elite in Luke's account tell Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. In his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Author Chuck DeGroat uh, quotes a definition of nar narcissism as the longing to be freed from longing. The longing to be freed from longing. See, they may not have been technical narcissists, the religious elite, but their pride and their self-sufficiency is, is clear. We can save ourselves. We follow the law. We follow the rules. We do what is right, and we're fine. We don't need you. But what were their hearts longing for except to be freed from longing? If we have it all figured out, if we can manage our longings, then we become our own hope. It's in us, in our ability to follow the rules. We hang our longings. Uh, Maggie Stevator writes in uh, her book, The Dream Thieves, you really didn't see the sadness or the longings unless you already knew it was there. But that was the trick, wasn't it? Everybody, everyone had their disappointments and their baggage. Only some people carried it in their inside pockets and not on their backs. The Pharisees and the scribes carried their baggage, their longings in their inside pockets. Their longing was a longing to be freed from the backpack of longing no longer yearning for a king and his kingdom to come, for his rule and his reign, but to dull the ache with their own sufficiency. See, the studs of their cabinets was drilled into was themselves. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, the books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they're 
mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they're not the thing itself. In other words, we deeply feel a longing for a far-off country, and the beauty and the memory that comes through the symbols and images of it can be mistaken for the thing itself, and it breaks the heart of those who worship the symbols and images. The religious elite had mistaken the images of God's rule and reign over his people for his actual rule and reign. The system was now what was sacred, which pushed out the longing, the desire for the king and his kingdom. Where do we allow our hearts to stop longing and instead rely on our own ability only to become my own hope? Ultimately, my heart will be broken, as Lewis writes, because, because I know me. I know how deeply I can hang the longings on me, which isn't very deep. So what appears like a remedy is just stop longing at all. And then I become self-sufficient on my journey to hope. Except my heart will still be broken, and so will yours. Finally, let's look at Jesus, the eternal journey of true hope through the journey of Jesus. Here's, here is Jesus on a journey to bring true hope. The journey of the crowds that seem unfulfilled, the self-fulfilled journey of the religious, they haven't deterred Jesus in his journey at all to bring true hope. They haven't distracted him. They haven't delayed him. And while this journey to, to Jerusalem starts in Luke's gospel at chapter 9, all of Scripture firmly connects this journey back to the very garden from which our deepest longings flow. Back in the beginning, when our first parents walked with God and had an intimate relationship with him, until they rebelled against him and were expelled from their garden home and their fall that brought guilt and shame and a brokenness that reaches all of creation and our longing, our heart nostalgia for this distant place that was lost. But remember, it was at that moment of the rebellion that God promises a redeemer that would crush the head of Satan who deceived them. And in that promise, God said Satan would strike the heel of this Savior. So while the shalom, the wholeness of that garden continues to painfully echo in our hearts, our true hope is in God's promise to one day fully redeem and restore his people, all because of his own faithful love for them. And the rest of Scripture speaks of this Redeemer, who would be the true hope of his people, the one who would become ultimate prophet, king, and priest and lead his people back to the sinless, shameless, unbroken shalom of a restored creation. And I'd like to briefly consider Jesus in each of those three offices, those three roles as prophet, king, and priest. First, Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Moses was a great prophet of the Old Testament. And God promises Moses in Deuteronomy 18 to raise up a prophet like him. 
in whose mouth God will put his own words. And the writer of Hebrews identifies this prophet as Jesus. He writes, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses, just as the creator has greater honor than the creation. Jesus says of himself, for I did not speak of my own accord, but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. See, when Jesus speaks, it's the very voice of God we hear. So we know we hear the fulfilling of God's promise to redeem and restore when Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you'd know my Father as well. See, hearing Jesus is to hear the voice of the, of the Father. And he says there's no other hope. He is the way. He is the journey. And we can hang all of our longings, our wounds, the lies around us, our wandering here on him as our secure hope. Jesus says so. And he speaks with the very authority of God. Second, Jesus, the ultimate king. You know, a very similar story to this Palm Sunday uh, happened centuries before. King David was, was old and sick, lying on his deathbed, and God had promised through him to have an eternal dynasty, that an, that an eternal king would come through his lineage, and that lineage would be through his son, Solomon. But his other son, another son, Adonijah, uh, decided that he was going to take up the mantle of king for himself. And as he started his resistance and his self-fulfilling journey, it led to a crisis in the kingdom through his revolt. Well, David's wife Bathsheba had gotten wind of this revolt and Adonijah's um, usurp, usurpation of, of kingdom power and she told David. And so David takes a donkey and seats his son Solomon on it and parades him into Jerusalem through the same path that we see Jesus following today. It's the announcement of the true king, not one seated on a war horse, but the one on the donkey is the one who is the true son of David. The pretenders to the religious throne are just that, they're pretenders. But this king, unlike Solomon, is the true eternal king that God has promised according to his promise, the promise he made in the garden of a redeemer and a promise to David to establish an everlasting kingdom through him. His rule and reign are eternal. He's sovereign over all creation because he's not a king from creation. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why he can ride an unbroken colt through thousands, tens of thousands of people all yelling and the animal steadily carries him through. He can enter a fierce 
storm on a sea, and speak shalom, peace to the wind and waves, and they are silent. He can say to Lazarus, come forth, and even death itself obeys him. He can assure these religious leaders that if his followers don't praise him, even infants and rocks will cry out his praise because he is king of everything. Zechariah's prophecy about the king coming on a donkey continues into verse 10 where he says, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim shalom, peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So he can and will subdue all of his enemies, including death, and make them his footstool. All of the pain and sorrow and sickness of the world healed and creation released from its groaning, renewed and pure, just as it was in the garden. Because he's king of all, so we can be assured that his journey of eternal hope will not be thwarted. It can't be. He's king. Third and last, Jesus is the ultimate priest. We know, we know how this week ends with Jesus broken and bleeding and dying on a cross, alienated and abandoned. And as, as Isaiah prophesied, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Redeemer that God promised at the time of our rebellion here secures for us, firmly anchored into the wood of the cross, our eternal hope, where we can hang every one of our longings, our guilt, our shame, he bore alienation from God so that we could become friends of God and be fully known by him. He bore the wrath of God so we might be reconciled to him. He was broken so we might be healed. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. As Tim Keller writes in The Prodigal God, he was expelled from the presence of the Father he was thrust into darkness, the uttermost despair of spiritual alienation in our place, cosmic homelessness, so that we could be welcomed into our true home. That's what we're longing for at our core. There echoes the memory of the garden, driving our journey in, in search of a true hope, an eternal hope. We may have our hearts broken along the journey only to find out our disappointment came by hanging our longings on earthly hopes. We, we may, like this crowd, be dis disappointed even in Jesus because we expected something he hasn't promised. But Jesus never disappoints. 
He is a true hope, firm and secure, an anchor for the soul. We may fail, but he won't. And Jesus extends for whoever believes a true and lasting hope, and he journeys on to the cross to firmly secure it for all who will hang their longings on him. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers. He wrote this. Who told you that the night would never end in day? Who told you that the sea would ebb out till there should be nothing left but a vast tract of mud and sand? Who told you that the winter would proceed from frost to frost, from snow and ice and hail to deeper and yet more heavy tempest? Who told you this, I say? Don't you know that day follows night, that flood comes after ebb, that spring and summer succeed to winter? Hope then, hope you ever, for God fails you not. Let's pray. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.